Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, so thank you for, uh, for joining me. <laughs> Sorry, I got an early start today. Thanks for joining me this Wednesday, January 25th. I am coming to you live from downtown Chicago. We are at Morningstar on West Washington, just uh, one floor down in the auditorium. Tomorrow, we are going to do our big mayoral forum. Everybody's going to be there. We have Brandon Johnson. We have uh, Dr. Willie Wilson. We have Paul Vallis, Mayor Lightfoot, Congressman Chewy Garcia. We also have... Alderwoman Sophia King, Alderman Roderick Sawyer. We have State Representative Cam Buckner and Community Activist Jamal Green. We are going to tomorrow. Uh, here's how it's going to work out. We are going to go on the air at noon. Turi Ryder is going to be back at the station, and I've been told that the first 15 minutes she's going to do what we're calling the pregame, and I believe she's going to be joined by David Axelrod. Then at 12.15, we will have all the panelists on the stage. Everybody will have their microphone on, and we will be over the radio and on our website um, and, you know, if you want to listen on the TuneIn Radio app, we will take to the airwaves with our first panel of uh, Paul Vallis, Mayor Lightfoot, Chewy Garcia, Brandon Johnson, uh, Dr. Wilson. And uh, we are going to spend an hour talking to them about the issues that the people who live in the city of Chicago care about. We're going to start off talking about public safety. Uh, we're going to talk about public schools. We're going to talk about economic development. We're going to talk about how they will house the unhoused. We are going to talk to them about public transportation. You know, and um, I think we're going to get some great answers. We're going to uh, talk to them. It's going to be me and Santita from 1215 to about 1245. And then we're going to take a quick break, and Santita and Patty Vasquez are going to flip out. Then we're going to do another half hour with the same uh, panel with me and Patty Vasquez alternating questions. Then we are going to take a 15-minute break. We're going to throw it back to Turi Ryder back at the station, and we are going to switch out our first panel for our second panel. And we are going to talk to, on our second panel, Sophia King, Cam Buckner, Rod Sawyer, and uh, Jamal Green. And we're going to ask them about the same topics. We're going to ask them about crime. We're going to ask them about small businesses. We're going to ask them about ethics reform and all kinds of other things that voters want to know about. In part, we know you want to know about it because you emailed us some questions. And we were so happy to get them. We have, um, we've worked pretty hard to try to do this forum in a way that is meaningful. Yes, obviously public safety and crime is a topic that they cover every time they do a panel or they do a debate or they do a forum. But we are hoping to 
even on the topics you've heard about before, we are hoping to advance the ideas, advance the conversation. We are going to be asking what we hope are very specific questions. We hope to get very specific answers, answers that give you the kind of information you need to to make a judgment when you go to the polls on Election Day. So please join us. The festivities kick off at noon. We are going to be broadcasting two forums back-to-back live. Um, not quite sure exactly when we will wrap up. It's pr- We'll probably wrap up between 3.30 and 4 would be my guess. We're planning on 3.30, but... <laughs> And and I am the timekeeper, so I guess if we blow too far past that, I am the one that you can blame. I'm going to try my best to keep everybody to time and keep things moving along as best I can. But, you know, politicians, they're chatty. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I think you'll find it entertaining, informative, and valuable. And I certainly hope you join us for this. We've put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into it, and um, I hope it is of importance to you. I hope it is of value to you when you go to the polls. So that's going to be, oh, by the way, and um, Tory Ryder is also, I'm told, going to be talking with former Governor Pat Quinn. So there's that. Um, it is going to be um, an, an interesting, interesting It's going to be an interesting group of folks. I think we've got an interesting group of questions, and I know we have some interesting moderators. Uh, Please join us tomorrow for that. Friday, we're going to be back to our regular broadcast where um, we're going to talk to some of the alders who are running for office, and we are going to talk to you um, in the segment we always do the first, like, half of the show when we take calls and talk about the news of the day. Um, one of the things that I'm going to save for Friday, Mike Quigley, Congressman Mike Quigley, on uh, the floor of the House of Representatives, um, gave a long statement today, a long, a long presentation, long for congressional standards anyway, on Lynn Bramer. Lynn Bramer, the nearly four-decade DJ at uh, WXRT DJ, uh, you know, gourmand <laughs> concert MC, writer of great note, Lynn Bramer, of course, died from prostate cancer Sunday morning. But I thought that was really, really classy of Mike Quigley to go on the floor of Congress and talk about Lynn Bramer. I'm going to, I'm, I don't know, I may share the whole thing with you on Friday. We'll see whether I show you share the whole thing or cut it down. News of the day. Uh, Russia is now saying, because, you know, I was talking to Professor Joel Ostro, Ostro yesterday from Benedictine University, and we were talking about Ukraine and the whole deal with these tanks. And he said, he explained that Russia is also lining up tanks. Lush, Russia is clearly getting ready for a ground war in Ukraine, and Zelensky's been saying, guys, if we can't fight fire with fire, this this war's over. They'll run right over us. 
Germany was very hesitant. I think the sense that I got from everything I read was that the country of Germany didn't want to send tanks by themselves because then they would be the focus of Russia's wrath. And, you know, they're very dependent on Russia for a lot of their natural resources. So President Biden said, well, okay, let's let's spread it around. We're going to send 31 Abrams tanks. The prime minister of the United Kingdom said, you know, uh, UK, we're going to send some tanks. Then German said, Germany said, okay, in that case, we will also send tanks. And, of course, tanks that are currently in Poland or Germany are going to get to Ukraine a lot faster than um, the tanks that have to come from the United States. But we're doing it. And from the discussion we had yesterday, it sounds like we're going to do it pretty quickly. Russia clearly believes that it's going to happen pretty quickly because they already came out and made statements today that they were going to destroy and burn any tanks piloted by Ukrainians on Ukrainian soil. They're going to destroy them and burn them. That's the threat today. There's a lot of stuff going on. Gee, I know, how many times am I going to be saying this over the next two years? There's a lot of stuff going on in the House of Representatives. You know, Kevin McCarthy's clown show continues. And um, as he promised the radical right, he is moving people around, taking Democrats off committees, putting crazy people on committees, and... Um, a couple of people have, um, Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell, have gone on cable news to uh, talk about what is happening right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's take a break. I'm going to share some of that with you when we come right back after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Uh, it's just refreshing. Chicago's Progressive Talk. WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Later today, uh, roughly 4 o'clock, we're going to be talking to Greg Hines from Crane's Chicago Business. I wanted to talk to Greg in part because of an article he wrote recently on the mayoral race, and he said that he thinks it's wide open, and he goes on at length to explain why. It is a wide-open race. We'll have him talk a little bit about that. But he's written something uh, really interesting today that kind of ties into uh, what's going on in Congress as well as the mayor's race. Congressman Chewy Garcia, who is, of course, considered one of the front runners to be the next mayor of Chicago, has been getting a lot of grief because he previously accepted a $200,000 donation from Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, the the crypto cuckoo, the guy who basically told people he was like a crypto king and all he really was was <laughs> sitting on top of a Ponzi scheme. 
Mayor Lightfoot was the first person to kind of give Chewy grief about the fact that he took that money. Now, um, Greg Hines is announcing that uh, Congressman Garcia has said that he is going to step down, that he is going to step away from the House committee that regulates digital currency and related financial matters. Some people are saying, hmm, is this because of the fact that you took money from a crypto king? I don't know. I don't know if that's the case or not. I don't know that anybody knows for sure whether or not that's that's the case. Congressman Garcia's office says that the reason he's doing this is because generally you have to, in, when you're in Congress, you have to get something called a waiver to be on more than one committee. And when the Democrats controlled Congress, a lot of Democrats got waivers and were able to be on several committees. Uh, but now, of course, waivers for Democrats are few and far between. But it's interesting because the financial panel that he was on is considered pretty pop, popular, pretty powerful, pretty desirable. And uh, he said that he is going to give that up because, you know, he knows there's only so many committees to go around. But he's going to stay on a transportation and infrastructure committee. So that's, you know, nothing to see here, just moving around, uh, respecting the new boundaries of the new Congress led by Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy, who, okay, where do we, where do we begin? Um, Kevin McCarthy has, as promised to the radical right, stripped Adam Schiff one of, forget that he's a Democrat for a moment. He is one of the brightest people in Congress. He has been on the Intelligence Committee. Past tense, no longer. Um, to vote to elect him Speaker, the radical right demanded that certain Congress people, among them Adam Schiff, be stripped of their powerful committee positions. Kevin McCarthy, now making good on that promise. Somebody asked Adam Schiff about this. You might be able to hear the reporter. She's a little soft, but she's asking Adam Schiff to react to the fact that Kevin McCarthy has stripped him. He is no longer, he is being pulled off the Intelligence Committee. Listen to this. That you should not be on the Intelligence Committee because he says that you've told lies, including about uh, former Chairman Nunes. I want to give you a chance to directly respond and also to you, Representative Omar, to the accusations that are laid against you. Well, you know, I can just say that uh, Mr. McCarthy's rationalizations, justifications keep shifting. Um, the cardinal sin appears to be that I led the impeachment of his master in Mar-a-Lago. Um, for withholding hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid from Ukraine, a nation that was even then at war with Russia, in order to extort that country into helping Donald Trump's re-election campaign. Uh, we proved those facts and got the first bipartisan vote in the Senate in history to remove a president. Um, Kevin McCarthy calls that a hoax. Um, well, it was not a hoax. Um, but he will do the former president's bidding. He is entirely reliant on the former president, uh, and this is something the former president wants. Um, but uh, I can assure you that if the former president or Kevin McCarthy believes that this is going to stop any of us 
uh, from fighting to protect our democracy, um, they're going to find out uh, uh, that the opposite is true. It only will intensify our commitment to doing so. It will only intensify our commitment to make democracy stronger. So I don't know if you caught the reporter's question. Kevin McCarthy is saying that he's taking Adam Schiff off the committee because Adam Schiff, Schiff lied about Devin Nunes. <laughs> you remember Devin Nunes? Remember Devin Nunes' cow? I still follow Devin Nunes' cow on Twitter. Devin Nunes tried to get the account Devin Nunes' cow <laughs> removed from Twitter and was unable to do so. Uh, Devin Nunes, uh, he who left Congress, even though he it was it looked like Republicans were going to take control. He had enough seniority to get a major job. But what did he decide to do? What did he decide to do? He decided to leave Congress altogether to be the head of Donald Trump's media empire. How's that going? How's that going for you, Devin? You know, by all accounts, Truth Social and all the other media efforts of Donald Trump uh, bankruptcy rumors have been swirling around those companies for a long time. Yeah, how's that working out for you, Devin? Are you just the happiest man on earth? Oh, and speaking of Kevin McCarthy and lies, one of the other Congress people that the radical right insisted Kevin McCarthy go after was Eric Swalwell. He, too, was also to be stripped of all of his positions. But Kevin McCarthy went about that a little bit differently. Instead of saying, like with Adam Schiff, oh, you told lies about Devin Nunes, so we can't have you on any committees. He's actually taking Eric Swalwell off the same committee, the Intel Committee, because uh, he's not trustworthy. He could be giving information to China. He might be a Chinese spy. Did you not know that? Well, if you've heard that kind of talk, the only reason that you're hearing it is because it is something Kevin McCarthy made up. It has been repeatedly, repeatedly proven not to be the case, investigated by the FBI. And yet Kevin McCarthy continues to spread these lies about Eric Swalwell. Eric Swalwell was on um, MSNBC with Alex Wagner. She's the host that uh, does most of the days that Rachel Maddow used to be on. And uh, they were talking about this. They were talking about the accusations. I cut the front of this sound a little short because the accusations Kevin McCarthy is making against Eric Swalwell go on and on and on. Basically, he's just saying... You know, he's feeding stuff to China. Everybody knows it. Nobody trusts him. And everybody in Washington knows this to be true. Well, actually, nobody knows it to be true because it's not true. And it's been repeatedly, repeatedly and pointedly disproven. Listen to this exchange between Eric Swalwell and Alex Wagner. So it wasn't just us who were concerned about the FBI was concerned about putting a member of Congress on the Intel Committee that has uh, effectively a relationship with a Chinese spy. What is your response to that? Uh, Alex, most importantly, John Boehner was briefed on this individual who tried to help my campaign in Barack Obama's first term. And John Boehner appointed me to the House Intelligence Committee. 
Paul Ryan, who had access as a Gang of Eight member to this information and investigation, appointed me to that committee. The FBI issued three statements saying all I did was help them and was never under any suspicion of wrongdoing. Donald Trump called me out at almost every rally, had access to more persons that, you know, more access to more information than anyone who walks this earth. And if he would have been able to weaponize information against me, we know he would have never did that. And just last week, Glenn Kessler, you know, at the Washington Post fact checker, an independent, you know, fact checker, gave Kevin McCarthy four Pinocchios for this claim. So you don't even have to take it from me. Just looking at the evidence and the fact that I was reappointed and that the Washington Post has debunked this shows that it's purely political vengeance. Political vengeance. That's that should be embroidered on a flag to be hung in the House of Representatives, because the Republicans told us they said in the lead up to the midterm elections, wait till we're in charge. We're going to go after Biden and we're going to go after Kamala Harris and we're going to go after Pete Buttigieg and we're going to go after Adam Schiff. We're going to impeach Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Well, um, what are you going to impeach them for? What's the crime they've committed? Well, we'll have to decide that after we're in power. Okay. I don't think you understand the impeachment process and what it's for. You see, somebody commits a crime or does something dastardly, and then you impeach them for it. You don't decide to impeach them and then try to figure out what you are going to impeach them for. That's not how it works. But um, this is the Revenge Congress. They told us they wanted revenge. They told us how they were going to get revenge. So they're just being who they are. <sighs> One last real quick thing before we uh, go to break and then talk to LaShawn Ford. <clears throat> Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, we've been talking about how she's trying to walk back some of the crazy. Part of the reason, apparently, part big part of the reason is because she's trying to position herself as less crazy so she can be Donald Trump's running mate. Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Who else, who else is going to have him? I, I say he ends up picking her. Who else is going to have him? <sighs> yeah. Let's take a break and uh, start talking to uh, some local people about what's going on in the state of Illinois. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about the mayor's race, all kinds of things coming up right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Listen to the Tom Hartman radio program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. One of our favorite people in the whole world to talk to is uh, State Representative LaShawn Ford. He represents the 8th District here in Illinois. I have been trying to get him on the radio for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I finally wore him down, and he said yes. LaShawn, how are you? <laughs> Now, you know, Joan, I will come at the drop of a dime for you. 
if I wasn't out of the country, I wanted to make sure that I was back in the United <laughs> States of America. <laughs> That's the only reason why I did not come on. Okay. In fairness, he did say, I'm going to be in Ghana, which I guess is a decent reason not to not to try to connect and be, be on the radio. What were you what were you doing there? We went on a mission um, to Ghana um, to look at business opportunities that could connect Illinois, educational opportunities to connect as the chair of higher ed. Um, Want to go and see if I could recruit some of the um, um, people from um, Ghana to come to some of our public universities and and bring some talent from um, in, in Ghana and. There's also opportunities for Americans to do business in Ghana. So we have a lot of small business owners right here in Illinois that have money, and Ghana is looking to find investors to help them with agriculture, to help them with things like technology. And so, you know, it it was a mission, and we do that in the General Assembly. And I think it was pretty successful um, because we also had an opportunity to meet with um, our embassy. Uh, really? Embassy, which, yes, it was. it's the largest embassy in the world. Ghana has the largest embassy in the world, American U.S. embassy. So they are excited about um, the possibilities, and I look forward to talking to Illinoisans about how they could connect with um, Ghana. You know, it... It's interesting that you say that they have the largest embassy because I was going to ask you of you know of all the countries in the world, why Ghana? Why why that focus? You know, gold in Ghana. There's a lot of opportunities for gold. There's still oil. There's a lot of resources in uh, the continent of Africa, and Ghana, being one of the countries, um, is rich in resources. And um, I think that it's um, an opportunity for America to do better by that African nation. Um, I know that we have a lot of uh, relations with different countries in the world. And I would urge our, um, our congressional delegation to be more friendly with um, Ghana. And it's a place that um, a lot of talent is there. Um, that America and the world needs to um, connect with, and there's a lot of resources there that America could benefit from. Was this an official congressional visit, or was it a private visit? No, it was an official meeting um, that we had. Uh, we also met with um, the current administration and former um, administration um, from the presidency office. Hmm. And met, I wanna... met with the mayor of of of, of the city, and um, so it was really something. We also went to the door of no return. And Joan, let me tell you, if you ever go to the slave dungeons, it would change your life. Oh my God! Because it's it's a place that when I look at your studio there, they actually put captured men and women, and in that studio, they would have 200 people packed in 
to that room that the um, station has you in now. It was such a, it was, you know, slavery, the enslavement process was just something that is the sin of this nation. And we got a, you know, we got a glimpse at what the black people from um, the Western part of Africa had to endure. So as a black American from the desk, I would tell you that me being in America is a miracle because what my ancestors had to endure, it was something that I don't think Americans today could endure what they had to go through when they were forced to this nation. And for those of you who've never visited WCPT, the studio that he is talking about is maybe, um, maybe like five by eight. I mean, it's the size of a rug. Uh, it is not, it is not a big space. Um, oh, that must have been just, uh, just, just hearing you talk about it gives me goosebumps. I mean, the kind yeah. of, that's the kind of history that we need to be informed about. That's why I'm always so puzzled when I hear, you know, these, especially Republicans say that, you know, we should never teach anybody anything in school that upsets them. Well, you know, there's a lot about history that is upsetting, and you're not doing your students any favor. That's right. History is not supposed to make you feel good. It's supposed to give you the truth. And when I hear that, that governor down there, I think it's in Florida, that says that um, there's no value to AP um, African-American history and we don't want to indoctrinate our students. Well, I tell you, when you teach history that's inaccurate and, and, and you don't tell it like it really is and you give it from one perspective, then that's indoctrination there. And so you have to work together to correct the teachings of the history of our nation. And so when the governor says that it's no good to have, well, the current history teachings in our in our um, schools are also indoctrination. And it's only based on one point of view, and that is of the white man when the history books were written, even women were not a part of the yeah. creation. So it's not just, you know, black people that have been, um, that has, that has been uh, miseducated about women, other minorities, other sexualities, all have been misrepresented in our history. And we should do better by making sure that we correct the teachings of history if we want to have a more peaceful society. And and what he's talking about, what he is making reference to, is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. There was um, um, a curriculum suggested that would have created an AP African-American history class for high school students. AP, of course, are the advanced placement tests that are more challenging and sometimes give high school students college credit. And um, Governor DeSantis said that there was no need. We can teach other AP histories. We can teach other AP classes, but not AP uh, African-American history. There's just there's just no need of that. 
which I thought was one of the boldest, most racist statements I've ever heard from a sitting governor. Yeah. And you know what? I, I don't find those situations as harmful as a silent racist, <laughs> you know, that, but for him to say it, it gives us the opportunity to work on it because now we know what he's thinking. You know, that's mm-hmm. what people really believe. So now when people, um, it, it gives uh, all of us an opportunity to know where we stand in this nation. So for so long, people have been thinking like that. Now people are saying it. And now we see why it's so difficult to change in society. It's difficult because people believe that we need more of the same. They don't believe that we should be open to being accepting to other people. And we believe that we have to listen to other people. I mean, DeSantis says that our history books are perfectly fine, even though it's inaccurate. And that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. That's really unfortunate. I'm talking with um, State Representative LaShawn Ford. He represents Illinois' 8th District. Uh, we're going to be taking a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about some of the things, uh, the, some of the measures he is supporting in the upcoming legislative session. One of the ones that I was reading about recently is um, you may have read, you know, Michael Pollan's written some books on this. You may have read about the idea of, uh, microdosing and using hallucinogenics for various mental health conditions, whether it's depression or PTSD. I want to talk to LaShawn Ford about a move to legalize some of that sort of thing here in the state of Illinois. We'll be right back after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. LaShawn Ford represents Illinois' 8th district in the House of Representatives. Uh, There's going to be a lot coming up during this coming legislative session in Springfield. One of the bills that I really want to talk to him about, though, is this, um, is this effort to legalize some form of psychedelic therapy. LaShawn, uh, talk to me about that. Yeah. So we're working with, um, the Cure Act in Illinois. We want to, um, do a couple things. One, um, after listening to, um, veterans, after listening to people with um, PTSD, people with terminal illness and um, anxiety and other mental health challenges, we have learned that there is a therapy available that has provided people with a cure that other pharmaceutical medicines have not been able to provide. And that is the ability to have a licensed Healing center provide a uh, dose of uh, what you call magic mushrooms, if we want to use that word, or psychedelic um, treatment. And we want to make sure that we put trained facilitators to use this natural medicine in licensed service centers in Illinois. And we believe that 
when we do this, we're going to be helping a lot of people across the state of Illinois. Um, it's been studied at some of America's top, America's top um, uh, medical universities like John Hopkins, UCLA, University of Alabama. You know, and it's it's nothing it's nothing new um, on the scene, but Illinois should um, join in the public demand for what you call a safe and legal regulation of this healing process. And you know, once these things are studied and found to be helpful, legislation like this is so important because it sets some ground rules for how this will be done in a responsible manner, you know, keeps the the quacks and the charlatans from getting into it, or worse yet, people from reading about this and because it's illegal trying to somehow obtain the materials and dose themselves on their own. And there's been a lot of, of recent studies about um, psychedelics, hallucinogenics, um, and all kinds of drugs, like the, for instance, ketamine for depression. Well, you know, as I was growing up, ketamine was an anesthetic. You know, I, and, and, and then suddenly I don't even know how the connection was made, but ketamine now is one of the best treatments for somebody who is acutely suicidal. I mean, we've got to, the government has to keep up to make sure that when these treatments are provided, they're done correctly, they're done safely and in a responsible manner. And I, I think that Illinois should be on the cutting edge of this. Why not? Yeah, and you know, like you said, you, you spoke to it because part of it is is going to remove the criminal penalties for the use of it. You know, you know, you don't see a lot of people in Illinois being charged with um, using it, but there is a lot of use of uh, people um, using this type of um, illegal drug. So making it safe and legal and regulating it mm-hmm. is actually going to be good because. You will not be able to buy it at a retail store. You're going to have to do it only in a regulated setting. And you can't take it home. You're going to have to stay in a licensed healing center in order to um, get the therapy. And it's going to be a a pre-approved personal resident um, that allows for people that are on hospice to use it as well. Let me tell you who else spoke about this. Prince Harry told 60 Minutes in an interview broadcast a few weeks ago that he used psychedelics. And he used it primarily as a way to deal with the treatment that he needed for mental health difficulties brought on by the grief of losing his mother at the age of 12. And this model that we have only for medical settings goes to exactly what Harry said. He said, I would never recommend people to do this recreationally, Harry said, but using this therapy, he he did the interview with Anderson Cooper, but doing it right and in the right setting Mm -hmm. works for people that are suffering from huge, huge amounts of loss, grief, trauma. And he said that his life actually changed because he was able to get the therapy from the um, treatment of psychedelics. Hmm. 
Um, do you think that this has a shot of becoming law this year, or is it going to take you a while? You know, I think this is going to be something that we're um, going to be working with our universities. We're going to work with our um, um, health department in Illinois and other stakeholders. You know, I believe that it's the right thing to do. And it doesn't take long to do what's right. So we will see how much pressure is put on Springfield from uh, the taxpayers to demand this new treatment in Illinois. So we're going to set up a uh, a committee, sort of speech, an, an advisory committee, so that we can look at and get the advice and the guidance from the committee so that we could um, have the best regulated psychedelic therapy program in Illinois. And so it'll only be for people 18 and older as well. Mm -hmm. What else are you uh, looking forward to working on with this coming new legislative session? Of course, uh, we're still um, pushing for what we call the safe consumption sites or the um, safe um, sites for people to go for their um, treatment that struggles with um, uh, substance use disorder. So we want to make sure that we do that. That's House Bill number two. So the overdose prevention sites is something that we are going to work on to try to get passed in Illinois. I mean, Citadel, as we talked about on the previous show, is flowing into the state of Illinois and hitting certain parts like the West Side at alarming numbers and the number of people that are dying from um, the fentanyl um, surge um, is unprecedented and the loss of lives are preventable. So for us, you know, House Bill 1, the Illinois Cure Act for psychedelics, and House Bill 2, the um, overdose prevention site, these are real solutions that we can make sure that we support people that are struggling in Illinois, or we could turn our backs on people that are struggling. And we're not there to turn our backs. We're here to help people. And these two bills actually will do that. Illinois has also been leading the way in trying to get a handle on gun violence um, and also making the criminal court system much more fair. And yet two of our big initiatives, getting rid of cash bail and the assault weapons ban, they're both um, facing court challenges. Do you think the legislation as it was passed will survive it? You know, I do believe that it will survive. And I think that um, voters and taxpayers should recognize that we have what you call a system of checks and balances. The legislature and the governor and everyone in Illinois knows that there is a problem with gun violence. Of course, we're not supposed to just sit idly by. We're supposed to bring stakeholders to the table and figure out solutions to a problem that we all agree we're experiencing. And that's what we did. We brought judges, prosecutors, uh, defense attorneys, and stakeholders to the table to help us draft the Safety Act. And this is what we've come up with. We've even had the, the judges 
from the Supreme Court committee, help us draft this. And so I commend the courts for suspending um, it for uh, a, a bit of time as it relates to the bail bond until we could get this um, system in order and every county is in place. I do believe that that's the right thing to do for the bail bonds under the Safety Act. But when you go down to the um, to the um, weapons of mass destruction of guns, I believe that we did the right thing. I mean, even Jim Durkin, the Republican, voted to ban assault weapons in Illinois. The Republican, and on yeah, but door, he he got he found his courage as he was on the way out the door. <laughs> he did, but he also talked about Henry Hyde that actually spoke about this as something that we need to ban in our country. And so Republicans of the past recognize that assault weapons has no place in our communities. And so what we have to do now is wait for the court's decision and recognize and deal with what the courts tell us that we have to do since it's a system of checks and balances. But talking to the governor, he believes, and Kwame Rao, the state, uh, our attorney general, they both believe that we're in good standings to uh, make sure that um, our ban on assault weapons will stand. Um, when I talk to the governor, he often say about, I think there are about nine other um, states that have been able to uphold their assault weapons ban. So it looks good for Illinois. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I want to ask you about is the composition of this upcoming legislature. I was talking to another representative right after the midterms, actually after the primaries, and they said that they were kind of concerned, not so much on the Democratic side, but they said that some of the more moderate Republicans who they had been able to work with on bipartisan bills, people who were willing to work across the aisle, some of those people had gotten primaried by far more hard-right uh, politicians, and they had lost. And, you know, as a, there's a lot of uh, rural areas, there's a lot of um, red areas downstate, a lot of those more radical Republicans are now in office. Are you concerned that this next session or two, it's going to be more difficult to get anything done on a bipartisan basis? Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm... I'm hopeful that we have enough Republicans and the leader that's on the other side um, will be able to um, convince her um, members to listen um, and be open to uh, being rational. But also, we have to remember that we can have, you have Democrats and Republicans. We can have some Republicans that's far right, and we may have some Democrats that's far left. And so I'm not going to um, automatically, we haven't met as a body yet, throw the Republicans in a basket yet. It's my hope that with 78 Democrats, there's nothing that can hold us back from helping not only Democrat districts, but Republican districts, too. So we have the um, all executive offices. We have a supermajority in the House and Senate. We can help people in Illinois if Democrats want to. 
in the time we have left, is there any bill that is going to be coming up, whether it's to the full um, legislative bodies or in committee, any bills that we here at WCPT should be keeping an eye on? I think that you nailed it with the psychedelics, making sure that we um, see that one. That's going to be a big bill. It is HB number one. It is Illinois' number one bill in the system for um, 2023. The bill is House Bill number one, the Cure Act for Illinois. We will definitely keep an eye on that one then as it uh, as it proceeds through. Uh, LaShawn, thank you so much. You know what? It was worth waiting for you. You are worth <laughs> waiting for. And, you know, I'm glad you um, felt like you accomplished some good things in Ghana. Uh, and it was interesting for you to share that with us. And don't take any more trips. So next time I call you, I want you on the radio right away. Right away. <laughs> yes. Right. You have your marching orders. Thank you. You guys have a great team there. Thank you so much. Thank you. LaShawn Ford, uh, in the Illinois House of Representatives, he represents Illinois' 8th District. He's been doing that since 2007, been there a while, too. We are going to be taking a break for news at the top of the hour, and when we come back, we're going to be joined by somebody that I, I know you enjoy when I have him on the radio, Professor William Howell from the University of Chicago. He's a professor of political science. And, um, oh, I have so many questions. We are going to be talking about the politics of gun violence. We are going to be talking about the crazy Republicans in Congress. And we are going to be talking. I want to ask him if there are any historical precedents. Has there been a time in our past when we've had a George Santos that was elected to national office? Are, are, are there crazy people in our past as well as in our present? So, oh, and the other thing. You know, he's the guy that has um, the credentials that are always take me like five minutes to go through when I list all the things he's doing and all the committees he heads and all the different things that he teaches. Maybe we'll ask him if he can rattle off his bio in one sentence or two sentences or less. Oh, we are going to take a break. Um, William Howell's going to be here for an hour. Like I said, we're going to talk about all kinds of political science questions. If you would like to join our conversation, feel free, 773-763-9278. That number, you can call us on that number. You can text us. Our texting line, sponsored by Camp Kupagani, we thank them for that, 773-763-9278. We'll get all the answers right after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away. 773-763-9278. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. It'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks Radio Program. Mega Worldwide. This is WCPT 820. Listen in Chicago on 820 AM or stream us live on WCPT820.com. The TuneIn Radio app or tell Alexa or Google to play WCPT. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. I am joined by Professor William Howell. He's from the University of Chicago. Uh, which credential would you like to share, or credentials would you like to share right now? Uh, well, I'm, I teach at the University of Chicago. I'm the political scientist, and I have appointments in the political science department, where I'm currently the chair, and also in the Harris School of Public Policy. And those are two different things. Those are two different things. Public policy, politics. Exactly. One is in the Division of Social Sciences, and the other one is a professional school. Um, and you just didn't have enough on your plate. Uh, they're were, both fabulous you know, places. You, you didn't want to go home, uh, you know, and take a nap. Yeah. No, I always want to take a nap. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, we were talking in the break about some news that, uh, came across a cable news, uh, just in the last couple of hours that, um, there's now a call that the national archives, should go to the houses, offices, storage lockers, garages of all the living former presidents and go through the documents. You know, obviously, you know, the ones that are when they most of them have presidential centers. So there's I assume the documents there get looked at on a regular basis. But stuff that they may have in a box in the attic up above the garage when their office got packed up. What do you think about that and this whole idea of keeping those especially classified documents and taking them home, sticking them in the garage? It really is something, isn't it? Um, I mean, former presidents strike me as a starting point, not the end point. Um, these clear, these, these documents are clearly leaking. They're sitting out all over the place such that the people who, who have them don't even know that they have them. Um, this has changed in an interesting way, the politics associated with the investigation of Trump. And then we had Biden in the hot seat. And with the revelations now that documents are sitting with a vice president, um, Pence, former vice president Pence, says home, um, suggests that these things have ended up all over the place. There's very little by way of tracking. There are also longstanding concerns about just how much is being classified. And there are uh, lots of complaints about overclassification of documents. There's stuff that has no business being classified, and yet it is being classified. Who, um, who is, is, who, is there a Department of Classification? The I, I am the Vice President of Classification, and show me all your papers? Yeah, well, there are a number, there's, there's a whole process in place, and there are a whole... whole, whole, whole group of bureaucrats who then designate um, what should be classified and what not. And they're under strong, they have strong incentives to overclassify in, insofar as they don't want to get into trouble. Um, there aren't, um, the, the danger for them politically doesn't usually involve overclassification. It's, it's that some state secret uh-huh. le- leaks out. And, God and, and forbid the, they should be the one that said that document was okay. And they're on the uh, bottom of page seven is something that, you know, we don't really we don't want, want out in circulation. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, what started out as a scandal is morphing into, I think, uh, a, a possible and a very and potentially very healthy reevaluation of a classification system. Well, and here, that would be to the good. I, I think to be a little bit more picky about this, I think the scandal resulted not. I mean, you know, I mean, we've seen taking these things seems to be a, you can be, be an honest mistake. Whether or not we think that happened with Trump, it is at least possible. 
But the idea that he lied about having documents, the idea that he made his attorneys sign legal forms that saying all the documents had been turned over, you know, the idea that um, he basically wasn't going to he wasn't going to share, wasn't going to let anybody look, and when they were found, wasn't going to let anybody have them. That kind of lying and obstruction, I think that's where the scandal is. You know, I mean, he could have come out and said the the first day, you know, gosh, we got a couple of boxes we didn't mean to grab. You know, come on in, clear it all out, guys. But, you know, he repeatedly, the reason that the FBI served a subpoena on Mar-a-Lago in August was because they had been told in a formal legal document by Trump's lawyers in June that every document of any importance was already gone. They attested to it legally in a document. And yet somebody snitched. The FBI says that they got information from someone in the know that not only were documents still in Trump's possession, but classified and t- classified top secret documents were still in his possession. So there was this lie, these lies and this cover up, which is unsurprising. You know, this isn't the kind of guy that, that would, you know, oh, come on in. Let's have a cup of coffee. A paragon of transparency. Let's look over these documents. You know, that's that's not who he is. So I think that's where the scandal is. And that's why it bothers me when people conflate, you know, their, what, what Biden did. And maybe now they seem to be backing off now that Mike Pence, because Mike Pence was like, first of all, he was really sanctimonious when Biden's documents were found. Well, you know, we got to be careful. These things are really important and we got to have the right people handling them. <laughs> and then it was like, uh, first it was just, well, they found documents. Well, no big deal. And now we've discovered some of them are classified documents. That's right. At Mike Pence's house. So he's been pretty quiet about that recently. That's, but I, I have, uh, my sense is that the discovery um, of the documents at Pence is shifting the conversation that we're having about this issue. Because the counter to the 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 points that you made, uh, that was striking me as right on vis-a-vis Trump, is that, well, he... Um, you know, the FBI raided his private home. And what an extraordinary act to, um, to undertake with regard to a former president. And moreover, there was discovery of documents in Biden's home months ago that then wasn't publicly revealed. And potentially some of them had been discovered before the election and that wasn't promptly shared. And was that done in order to... Uh, Kind of cover up an inconvenient truth. And, and so we were then in this space where folks on the left and folks on the right were sort of digging in. Um, um, and then along comes Pence. And then along comes Pence. And it shifts the narrative. It shifts the narrative to maybe what we should be doing is going and checking out all the homes of the president, the former vice presidents, and developing a comprehensive system to track these things and to revisit how much is being classified. Well, that's what, um, as we've been talking about this, my listeners have been calling in and they're like, does no one keep track of this stuff? It's unbelievable. You know, isn't what's, wh- how does this keep happening? And I don't know if this is, this may be a part of the answer, probably not the whole answer, but the sheer volume of paper created, especially when you're the president, especially in the White House, I mean, it's got to be staggering to try to keep control of all of it and to try to make sure every single document goes in the direction it's supposed to go. Yep, 
and the documents don't go in the directions they're supposed to go. They sort of, uh, some do, and many spread to the wind. And um, I think our shared sense is, is that what we're observing here is a piece of a much larger phenomenon. Um, so and, do you think there'll be changes? And if so, what kind of changes are we going to see in the way documents are, are handled or processed? Or maybe they need special paper that has like a little Apple AirTag on it. There we are. So, you know, get like 10,000 of them. And then <laughs> right. you can look on your phone and you can see it. where every piece of paper is. What's the answer? Uh, well, um I'm not an expert on how you track paper, but I think we need um, a better system than the one that we currently have. And uh, the protocols that are in place clearly are are not working. Um, and that involves both. I mean, what we're seeing right here is former presidents bringing this to their home. You wonder about sitting presidents, where those documents are sitting, who has access to them, or do only the right people have access to them? Mm-hmm. Um, presumably, there's a lot in circulation. Um, uh, even while presidents are, I mean, while people in power are 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 making decisions and justifiably have access to it, but do their family members as well? Do their friends as well? Where and and so this is, I mean, it's a big challenge, um, but it's one we would do well to get after. In your work as a professor, have you gotten away from paper? I mean, do you, are you buried in paper because? I used to, I used to print everything out, every article that I wanted to reference. I would write Word documents. My desk at home would literally be covered. There would be about a five foot swath of paper. And when I ran out of room, I'd start taping them to my computer. Yeah. So I'd have all the facts right there. And I've weaned myself off of that. And now I can create a Word document that sits on my computer desk, you know, and I, okay, I did buy a great big monitor, so I have a little extra room, but I have weaned myself off of that. I'm assuming, though, as far as government work, there would be some security concerns if everything is electronic. I mean, would that make things easier to hack than a piece of paper, which you actually have to have in your hands? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. It's an interesting thing. I mean, you could imagine that you have, while you're sitting in office, you have access to electronic access to certain kinds of information, but that that access is cut off centrally once you're no longer in a position of power. That's a possibility. I mean, to your earlier question, like this paper rule, I don't know, does it rule our, my life in the way that it clearly used to? I think the answer is no. Thank God for the iPad, right? Between student papers and manuscripts and, um, and drafts of books and existing books and papers, but like they're now nicely organized on a tablet that I can carry around with me. And I'm grateful for that. Same. So too, though, but there's a little bit of a loss. Do you, do you listen to records? I mean, do you, do you, or do you just have everything on your iPhone and listen? Because you can access every song ever written. There's something sort of I, magical about having the record yeah. collection that you fumble through, right? Uh, I do have the record collection, and I'm old enough to have pretty much every format that has existed um, for the past 50 years. But you're you're right. I mean, I have a I have a turntable. I don't even know if it works. It's been so, <laughs> it's long, been so long since I've tried to use it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're, you're right. And I do, it's just so easy to pull up a piece of music on your phone. And, you know, you can find the artist, you can find 
it's, you know... It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I remember, in, this was when I was in college at the dawn of time, long ago, and um, I, I, I went on a two-month trip to China, and I thought, I can't possibly be away from music for that period of time, and I lugged with me, it must have been 40 pounds of cassette tapes <laughs> everywhere I went, all, you know, <laughs> and now it just... And your boombox yeah, on exactly. your shoulder, That's exactly as right. one does. Oh, uh, another time. Yeah. yeah. We are talking to Professor William Howell. Uh, he's a professor of political science from the University of Chicago. We are going to talk more politics right after this. Take Jonas Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Stephanie Miller. We get an awful America-hating WNBA player while Russia gets an international arms dealer. That's the thing about the whole Hunter Biden thing. Are we just ignoring that every rant he posts, he's obviously completely drunk Coke and or to, to the gills? Allegedly. <laughs> right, allegedly, Chris. Did I say Adderall that he's crushed up and snorted? I'm sorry. Allegedly. Trump organization, criminal, criminal Trump organization is what's not alleged anymore. Right. Stephanie Miller, weekday mornings, 8 to 11, on WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, on WCPT 820. I want to remind you, tomorrow on this very radio station, we are going to be talking to all of the candidates who want to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. The festivities start at noon. We will start the forum at 1215. Please join us. It's going to run for a couple, couple and a half, maybe three hours. We'll see how it all shakes out. But we're going to try to make uh, the questions as specific as possible so that you get some real, meaningful, useful answers. I am, of course, broadcasting remotely uh, from the place where we are going to be doing the forum tomorrow. And um, you can't tell this because you're listening on the radio, but Professor William Howell is actually sitting across from me, the first guest who I have interviewed in person since the pandemic. Wow, is that you're true? You're the first in-person oh, guest I've talked to since 2020. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. We've been talking on the phone throughout yeah. this period. Um but uh, yes, when you when you reached out, I jumped at the opportunity because what a treat to be with you. Today. And I was I was delighted because you know it's um, as we were talking before. Sometimes it's nice to see somebody in actual three dimensions, <laughs> and we're lucky we're in a very big room, not a small studio. So we are uh, keeping ourselves COVID safe as well. So much politics I want to talk to you about. You know, in Illinois, we passed an assault weapons ban, and I do believe it will survive its court challenge. But at the federal level, I mean, the politics of guns and gun violence, it seems I know we've done rational, reasonable things before. For 10 years, we had a federal assault weapons ban. But with the current political atmosphere, it just seems that there will be nothing done about this problem. I mean, what what have we had just this week? Like three mass shootings, a couple in California, one in Washington State. I mean, what do you see happening with this issue? I, I mean, I, I think everything points towards continued tragedy. Um, in the aftermath of Sandy Hook, which was the last sustained effort by the federal government to grapple with this issue, 
which uh, where you had a president assigning President Obama assigning then Vice President Biden um, the task of trying to come up with a systemic coordinated effort to grapple with the challenges of gun violence in this country. And it effectively went nowhere. Um, and since then, it was completely predictable that we would just continue to see wave upon wave of tragedy. And that's, and sure enough, and we've learned to live with it. Um, and while there are, are moments of outrage, they are promptly displaced. Um, and it's hard to see that, like, what is the singular event that's going to, if, if it wasn't Sandy Hook, what would be that singular event? Or even those cumulative events, like when you sort of take stock. Or Uvalde. Right, or Uvalde. Yes. I mean, it's, it's one thing after another where you say, is this, is this a moment where we could get headway? I'll say it's also, from a policy perspective, uh, a real challenge to think about w- not what is something that we could do, but what are the collection of actions that are required to meet the enormity and totality of the challenge that we could imagine passing. We could imagine. I mean, they're, they're there before us. Things that we could do to limit the availability of high-powered guns, right? Okay. Um, but we also live in a world in which there are hundreds of millions of guns already in circulation. Um, and so what do we to do about them? What would it mean to recover them? What would it mean to change a culture about how we think about guns um, and our relationship to them? Um, what do we do about all the, 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 the issues and challenges that intersect with gun violence, having to do with poverty, um, having to do with um, segregation, having to do with mental health challenges, all sorts of things. Um, it's a it's a prof, it's a profound challenge, but we just are locked up, aren't we? I mean, we can't we can't even take a deep breath and say, "Ah, oh, let us come together and try to make sense of it in a serious um, and sustained way." Some people also say it's a money problem that the gun industry just has too much money to throw around. The gun industry is a real big part of of why they have whipped up, you know, this kind of, at least certain politicians who get a lot of money from them have whipped up this fervor, don't let them come for your guns, this is America, we're free here, but that it really all boils down to the money, the money to be made. I mean, from what I've read, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, but that after every mass shooting, when there's a fear that there will be gun restrictions, gun sales usually go through the roof. Just as they do when a Democrat is elected to the presidency, that that's good business for the gun industry um, because a sense that, right, the government is extending its reach and is going to, you know, uh, take a piece of your liberty by taking away your rights to own guns um, sets people a, a group of people really on edge and they say, well, I'm going to, I need to restock. Um, and that kind of response too is, is a part of the challenge that then we face. Again, there are hundreds of millions of guns already in circulation. So it's not just a story about the purchase of new guns. It's what's to be done about all those that are in circulation. And if, if part of the answer is trying to reduce that number, what would that look like? Like, how would we go about doing that? Um, and, and, and getting a hold of the guns that actually present, uh, a, a, a noted, um, threat to the well-being of, of, of citizens that are not a part of, you know, the people who want to go hunt. Um, it's a, it's a profound policy challenge, but, and grafted onto a polarized political environment where we learn to live with the tragedy and tragedy and tragedy. And, um, what, 
one of the other things that I think is because it's become political and it is because it's become a talking point and because um, not only the shootings, but also the political discourse on this whole idea has made it so far into the everyday world of media reporting. I think and I don't know whether it's the NRA or the politicians or the media or a combination of all of the above. I think to some extent we've created an idea in people's minds that no matter where you live, no matter who your neighbors are, you're not safe. Mm-hmm. You're not safe. A friend, well, not a friend, actually, my cousin uh, lives in a small town in Ohio. He's um, a weapons expert. He teaches people how to use weapons. And... um He told me last time I talked to him, last time I was back in Ohio, that some of the people he's teaching how to shoot guns, he said he had one woman who was in her 80s who came in to learn how to shoot a gun because she just didn't feel safe anymore. Small town in Ohio, not much of a crime rate, at least not in the years that I've been going there. But she has gotten it into her mind that she is not safe. We need to take a real quick break. But when we come back, I want to talk to you about that, how our our this atmosphere, this political atmosphere around guns that we've created has really sent the message to people that they're not safe. And the data doesn't always back that up. I'm talking to Professor William Howell from the University of Chicago. We're going to be right back after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Professor William Howell. He is with the University of Chicago. He is a political science reporter, a reporter. (laughs) You can tell where I came from. Um, Professor, but really political science is every aspect of life um i mean you might yeah, just say that yeah found everywhere, right he's, he studies people and what they do and how they think and you know how that uh, turns into public policy in some respects we've been talking about gun violence and we were talking about this idea that somehow all of the rhetoric uh, you know admittedly some shootings but also the media reporting on all of the talk about guns has created this atmosphere where we don't feel safe. And in the break, uh, William was talking about how that, imp- that if we don't feel safe, it impairs our ability to connect as a community and have conversations with people. Talk more about that. Yeah, well, there's a, it, it, it induces a kind of rigidity and distrust. And, and instinctively, when we don't feel safe, what we want to do is build up walls and, and a kind of armor against uh, those forces that threaten our safety. Um, and, and again, when you think about, it's so convoluted because then when you think about just how profound the challenges are of violence in America, if ever there's a, a topic where we need to engage it in a way that's open and clear eyed, um, and with our, uh, with, with an ability to listen and to engage across difference, it's this one. But when it's infused with 
the anxiety and distrust and, and fear um, that, well, that the, the gun lobby um, induces. But it is not just the gun lobby. I think that this is another thing we talked about. It's how, how there are, are lots of groups that stand to profit from um, a, a broad sense of, of uh, lack of safety, right? That, that, when, when fear courses through um, the polity, all kinds of um, people selling all kinds of products. Particularly, as you mentioned before, surveillance-type products. For sure. So, you know, the alarm systems and... Um, and, and, but, but it goes beyond that. It's also the, the kinds of cars that you might buy and, um, and, and your willingness to support politically greater investments in the police, um, all kinds of things that carries over into when you, when, when fear is the dominant. Now that you say that, and I'm thinking about that, uh, I have a perfect example of something that I did that is exactly what you're talking about. My daughter lives in L.A., she drives a lot, as everyone out there does, and she drives an older car, but it has one of those, it's not OnStar, but it's that similar sort of, mm. where it's a voice, if you push a button, if you get into trouble, and be, the, because the car is of a certain age, it was no longer going to be able, it doesn't have like 5G, and so it wasn't going to be able to connect to any of their services anymore, because it uses some sort of older system that um, I guess you have to buy a new car if you want to um, connect again. And I, she could have cared less, and I was completely freaked out. Yeah. You know, you won't have that button anymore. Right. You won't, what if, what if, what if, yes. what if you won't have that button anymore? And she was like, I was like, because, you know, I was like, well, we can buy this equipment and maybe retrofit the car. And she was kind of like, you know, can we talk about something else? Right, right. But there you were. You were... You were, you were gripped. And look, there are moments when it's absolutely appropriate to be fearful and to take precautions and whatnot, for sure. But when we think about the spread of guns in America, I mean, part of it is a, a, a love of the instruments themselves, a the sense that they're beautiful. Part, some of it's a story about um, um, a love of hunting. There's also a piece in a long history of it being caught up in a, of what it means to be free, right? It's about frontier living. Um, but this fear piece, right, that grips us, this sense that we are not safe and, and the enemy could be coming from any place. Um, and that the gun will deliver you the safety that you so want is, um, is a big piece of it. And it's really problematic. We have a caller. Uh, Paul is calling in from Seattle, Washington, to join our conversation. Hey, Paul, you're on with me and Professor William Howell. Go ahead. Yes, thank you. Uh, Indeed, politics is the architectonic science. Everything we understand, we first understand through politics, and that's the way it has been throughout history. And justice, we understand through politics. And that's why I say that the way it the contorted, this corrupted uh, understanding of justice that we have for the victims of gun violence, they have no redress. We they the, the we have federal law that exempted the gun industry from strict product liability, which renders any state laws on product liability practically useless because these companies will have them just simply removed to federal court. Will they be thrown out? So what we have is victims of gun violence, whereas Republicans have screamed forever about what about the 
What about the victims' rights of violent crimes? The Democrats stand up for the rights of the accused, but what about the victims? Well, I'll tell you what, the victims of gun violence, they have injuries, death even. They have cause, and we can't tell who the cause is, but they have no redress. They have no legal redress, because that's a political decision that this country has made. Federal law exempts the gun industry, but no other product in this country, every other product is subject to strict liability except guns. Because what? You have a right to shoot somebody. What about the victims? What about the victims' rights? Where is the outrage? Come on. Well, you you raise an important point, and I'd like uh, William to weigh to weigh in on that. I mean, we do give the gun industry special treatment, special protections from liability issues. Would that make a big difference if that was changed? It's a. I mean, I'll just underscore the question. I, I don't have. Uh, I, and I don't pretend to have the kind of expertise that's needed to, to give a proper answer to that. Um, it is extraordinary that we have an industry that can put these instruments into broad circulation, and then just the moment that they are let go, they are absolved of responsibility. Um, and, uh, and 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 the, the, and and to the extent that one person is held liable, it's the person who actually pulls the trigger. Um, th- it's it, 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 so, but what I don't what I don't know, and it would be worth finding out more about, is what would be the effect of imposing a greater level of responsibility on the gun industry on the downstream consequences that we that we want to get a handle on and that are causing so much damage. Um, I don't know. It's a great question. Um, let's go back to the phone lines. Brian is calling in from Joliet, Illinois. And uh, Professor Howell, he has a question for you. Go ahead, uh, Brian. Professor Howell is listening. Okay. I uh, hope you're both having a good afternoon. Uh, well, uh, my question uh, is, uh, uh, do you see a uh, connection between uh, the amount of uh, uh, violence uh, uh, probably especially amongst the young growing up, uh, but uh, uh, between uh, what uh, uh, one uh, observes, uh, the amount of violence one observes on television and film, for example, and uh, uh, how they uh, see uh, the use of guns and the horrible violence that we see here of uh um, between the two, because I, I believe to a certain extent there is, and I, I believe both of you, uh, you both, uh, Joan and the uh, professor, could weigh in on uh, uh, their views on this. I'd like to hear. Well, thank you for the question, Brian. I'm going to make your question even bigger and throw it to William. Um, we talked a little bit about, about media. Um, you, as a political scientist, how much does what we see in movies or TVs or read in the newspaper, the media we consume, the politicians we hear speaking to us, how much does that influence people's political beliefs? Is there any research into that? Because we, you know, we know that uh, people who grow up in very strict churches and are fed messages over and over again, they embrace those messages and live their lives according to those ideas and ideals. Um, but for the general person, is there any way to quantify what really influences a person's political beliefs? Um, there's a lot of work 
on this. And the findings point in all number of directions, as you might imagine. <laughs> so, that's, but not but I know, that's not the answer. I know. Right. But here, let me give you, let me give you one. I, I think if I were to summarize it, it suggests that the effects um, are conditional. The effects of the media on people's political views are conditional um, and mitigated. That is, it isn't that people read a news story and then automatically and naively adopt all the views um, that were in the news story. It's not that. Um, but nonetheless, it's detectable. Um, that is, um, the when you see a loss, as we have seen over the last 15 years, particularly of local uh, news coverage, that has had a profound impact on people's ability to collect information, particularly about local politicians, which in turn has affected the their ability and willingness to engage in the political process, which in turn, stay with me, has also affected the behavior of people in office. So, George Santos, you just described how George Santos got elected. It, it could be. It could. Be, I mean, it carries all the way through the system, right? When you you change the provision of information, that affects the the information um, and the views of people who 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 stand to vote. Um, and, and hold elected officials responsible, which in turn affects uh, the actual behavior of people once they're once they're in office. Um, but it's not a one-to-one correspondence. It's often refracted through partisanship. It's refracted through concerns about um, whether or not the frame, the media outlet, is uh, seen as credible. So. It, it is it also a volume question? Because when I was reading some interviews with people who had been deep down either QAnon, conspiracy holes, or other dark, uh, dark holes and came back to the way they thought before, and they would, it sounded to me in those interviews like the sheer amount of stuff, whether they, you know, were clicking on it themselves or not, but the sheer volume of of conspiracy theories they were being bombarded with sank in over time. It's right. The the volume and the kind of uh single minded marching order progression of the in what you're describing a set of conspiracy uh, stories. But I think that's true you can imagine in other spaces as well, when all you hear is one drum pounding, eventually that will leave an imprint on you start to think that's thinking. music. You start to think that that's music. And you start demanding that others <laughs> march accordingly. Hmm. I'm uh, speaking with Professor William Howell from the University of Chicago. We are going to take a quick break and come back for one more segment right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Professor William Howell is here. He's at the University of Chicago. He's a professor in American politics at the Harris School of Public Policy. Uh, do you still hold the uh, Sidney Stein I chair? do. They haven't taken do that you? away yet. Okay, yeah. That's all you're going to get this this time. All right. um, we'll, do, we'll do some of your other credentials next time you're on the air. Um, but before I let you go, we have to talk about what is going on in the Republican Party in Congress, where it appears to me that we have a radical right minority that is 
calling the shots, which seems which seems crazy to me. It's really striking. I mean, I'll say it seems crazy to me as a political scientist in a couple of ways, um, which which are slightly different from crazy in terms of those people's politics are so far away <laughs> as, as from my own to Those politics. people are crazy. Right. We'll just talk about the political science. Of right. It. How it was that this right flank was able to extract unbelievable concessions in this fight for the speakership um, when we live in a congressional world wherein, as a political scientist, I'm used to thinking about moderates having the most leverage. It's that critical last vote that's going to determine whether or not his bill is going to pass, right? That's what we focused, that's why we've been talking about cinema all for the last four years, um, uh, is because, you know, would she come around and support one bill or another? Because, right, but, but at the extremes, those people are just kind of along for the ride. And they may be complaining, and they may be very loud and vocal, but they lack much leverage, right, formal leverage in order to shape what's going on. And here we had a situation where, no, a handful, and it wasn't like there were many of them, 10 or 15 were able to extract all these concessions in a world where every vote counted because the majority that the Republicans had was very slim. Um, and I guess the thought that I that I had is that well, why didn't to the, the how, how to put this the more moderate Republicans say I'm not okay with you conceding all this ground um, because you're going to take us in a direction with which we disagree, and if you continue to offer those kinds of concessions. Um, what we'll do instead is convince a set of Democrats simply not to vote because it was a majority of uh, votes cast um, uh, of the votes that were actually cast. It was going to determine who the next speaker mm-hmm. was going to be. I mean, they had a play that they could have. They absolutely that was available. To there them, was even one suggestion that, you know, there's this Main Street caucus, Main Street committee they've created to um, supposedly counterbalance of the Freedom Caucus. And somebody was saying, you know, if one of those, quote, moderate Republicans who's willing to work in a bipartisan manner goes to Hakeem Jeffries and say, you know what, there's 20 of us, you get enough Democrats and your Joe over there is going to be the next speaker. And we promise that, you know, we're Republicans, you're Democrats, but we promise we will work with you on the key issues. We promise you that we will make sure that the debt ceiling gets raised without all of the drama. That kind of they thing. They didn't do right. it. They, and they could have. Or, or even what we I mean, there was a threat, which now has been delivered on, that the, that the Republican Party was going to be shifting even further to the right. And they could, the moderates could have turned to the Democrats and say, please, this next round, 15 of you, just don't vote. Just don't vote. Um, and that then the remaining votes will be enough in order to push it through, and that those concessions then to the far right of the Republican Party won't be made. And that in and itself, um, if you're... If, if you're a moderate Republican, ought to constitute a very, a real win. And if you're a Democrat, you know, we ought to say, okay, that's better for the country. Which leads me to believe that Kevin McCarthy not only made concessions and promises to the radical right, but to keep them in line, I think that he made agreements with the moderates. Because what you're saying is so obvious and could have brought things to a conclusion so quickly, but it would have meant no Kevin McCarthy as speaker. So, how did he keep them in line? How did he keep them loyal? 
I think that um, it isn't just it isn't just uh, Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert who uh, made demands. I I think Kevin McCarthy made the deal a deal with any devil that would talk Anybody to him. Anybody would sign up. <laughs> yeah. that, could, that could well be. But he but he he ceded power when he didn't need to to the Gates, uh, the Matt Gateses and the and the Lauren Boeberts of the Republican Party. He didn't have to in order for it to win. He could have gotten it through without those ten or fifteen votes if. Again, and this is a big if, if 10 or 15 Democrats simply don't vote, it then would have gone through. Um, and so you know, that Hakeem wasn't Jeffries done publicly. It wasn't was done kind publicly. of asked about that. Like, you know, are you back channeling? You know, is mm-hmm. a, And he looked at the reporter and he said, you know, it's not the Democrats in Congress job to make things easier for the Republicans. Right. Right. And yet we all have something. We, I mean, in this polarized world. We all suffer in a wherein a handful of extremists grab a hold of the party apparatus and exact all kinds of concessions such that we now are in a world in which the probability that the debt ceiling goes up is diminished, wherein our ability to pass basic spending bills is going to be diminished. Our ability to actually to, to meet the challenges of the day is compromised, like Severely. Yeah. I mean, that's that that may redound politically in some way to the benefit of Democrats in the next election. True. But it, it, it's but we're going to we all, we have to live to through get it. there. Exactly. During one of the breaks, when Kevin McCarthy was still trying to become speaker, they interviewed one of the Democrats um, and they said, well, you know, what do you think Kevin McCarthy's doing right now? And the Democrats said, well, I don't know. But if he's smart, he picked up the phone and called Nancy Pelosi and said, how do I get out yeah. of this? Help me. <laughs> Help, Help me. me. Where's what's my yeah. path forward yeah. here, Nancy? Be careful what you wish Nancy for. Nancy Pelosi, you're my only hope. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. So how do you think this is going to play out? Are, are the crazies going to stay in charge? until somebody gets mad enough at Kevin McCarthy that they kick him to the curb. I suspect, you know, that Kevin McCarthy, who, of course, we know is an invertebrate, um, is going to let the radicals, you know, bring their crazy bills up. Yes, you know, we want a salt shaker on every table, whatever it is. And he knows the Senate isn't going to get they're not going to Schumer's even said some of this stuff. He's not even going to present it. It's not going to even be heard in the Senate. And, and, and even for some reason, if there was something that got through the Senate, Biden has said, you know, I got my veto pen. Yep. I got it on my desk. Yep. So I think McCarthy's going to sit back and he's going to let the two year olds run the show for a while until maybe he's hoping that they'll get the crazy worked out of their system at some point. Um, if he does, that's a that's a. Uh, that that betrays a, a level of naivete that I mean, the <laughs> idea that they just need to work it out and then they'll be fine and we'll all snap back and unlikely unlikely but um he, look he, he his ability to govern has been compromised by virtue of the compromises that he made right the concessions he offered and he can be pulled from that seat that he's barely holding on to with just one Republican coming forward and saying, I want to revote. I mean, he, he's, he's barely installed. Um, and so he doesn't get to now declare victory, settle in and say, now let's, let's underdo the hard work of governing. Um, he's, he's going to be on his heels. You've not only studied policy, but you've studied the people in these realms. You know, I know Kevin McCarthy has to know he is, He's 
he's neutered. He has no power. He has the title. He'll get the painted portrait up on the wall at some point. Why is that? Are there people? Is it just to get just that vanity. title? I just, just want the portrait. you know, it's uh, by God. When I die, they're going to say he was Speaker of the House. Is is that it? Yeah. Because he's gotten this position in a way that negates everything about the position you might want. Right. Well, it's a. <laughs> it's really something. I mean, there are two stories you can tell. One is the story that you've just described. He's just in it for the purposes of vanity. He wants the portrait and say, I did it. That's, that's one possibility. There's another possibility that he's doing a long play. He sees a lot of tumult within the Republican Party. Right now he has to make these levels of concessions. But once installed, he can then continue to bargain and negotiate. And the play is four, six, eight years out to be able to do something substantial that aligns with his ideological convictions. There was a, the, 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 and there's this other option, which, I mean, listening to you came to mind, um, which was the plea that Obama made. Remember when he was trying to get a bunch of Democrats to take a hard vote for them? It was going to be a hard vote voting for the Affordable Care Act. And the line that he that he put forward again and again was, look, like, why did you seek this office? Like you sought this office, presumably to make a difference. And here is here is your chance. I mean, so you sit in an office for 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 a decade, but have nothing to show for it. Like for what? Then why would we call that a win? Here's an opportunity. And yes, it's going to come at a political cost for some of you. And some of you may lose the office. But in the meantime, you will have had this profound and enduring effect on the direction of our country. That, that as a kind of appeal to leadership um, and a sense, sensibility, it runs in reasonably short to p- supply in our politics. I was just going to say, do you think yep. Kevin McCarthy's having those conversations? Hard. We don't see a whole lot of evidence of it, do we? No, we do not. No. We absolutely do not. We still have a, a couple of minutes left, and I, I'm kind of veering off here. You were talking earlier about how President Obama charged uh, Joe Biden, his vice president, with trying to tackle this idea of gun safety after Sandy Hook. Yeah. Um, president Biden was given, when he was vice president, he was given a lot of important tasks um, to go to the Senate and try to get people over on their side. Kamala Harris has been sent to a lot of funerals. Mm-hmm. And a lot of mm-hmm. not even B list, but C list countries to sit down and meet with the executives. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that she's being given any seriously, really important work to do on behalf of the administration. Is that what you see? And if so, why do you think that is? It's really interesting. Her, sh- her star is not shining more brightly. There was a storyline when, uh, they won in 2020, which was this is clearly going to be a one term presidency and the reason why he picked somebody who was younger is he was picking the standard bearer for the party uh moving forward in the aftermath of his of his one term in office and boy if he decides not to run i mean a lot of signs point towards him running again which is a whole other topic we can we'll, we'll put that on our next okay. uh, our next bill biden running yeah. again let yeah. me write what it down because i like? will forget right. okay um uh but it's not at all clear that she would even be a front runner for consideration for to take the nomination that her star has dimmed politically um and why that is is i mean we need some investigative journalists to come forward and well and, the only and, and thing that i can think of us. is by the time he was obama's vice president biden had been in this in the senate for about 500 years yep so he knew everybody, he knew the system, he knew how it worked, he knew what people were motivated by. He was a real asset. 
She's, I think, very bright, but she has a very short resume. It's like, you know, this job, and then you did such a great job with this job, and now, ooh, let's make her vice president, this job. And I don't think she has the connections and the knowledge to go to Senate, to the Senate and sway them one way or the other. I mean, I don't think she has those relationships. That could, that could be, but she didn't just spend a couple of years in the Senate. She was there for, for a bit. She was the Attorney General of California. She had a pretty meteoric rise. Yes, but then, and then there was also the promise that we were told about in 2020 that she would get the same deal that Biden got um, uh, from Obama, which is she would be the last one in the room. Yeah. Um, and all presumably and all that, ain't happening. That, would, that doesn't appear to be happening. We have, um, yes, we've gone over our time yet again um, because I'm a broadcasting professional. <laughs> uh, Professor William Howe from the University of Chicago, thank you for not only talking to us today, but talking to me in person. What a treat. I'd forgotten what this was like. Amazing. I'm going to go back to my den um, after this, so I will probably never see anybody ever again. But it was <laughs> delightful while it happened. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Joan. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more right after this. You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Crane's Chicago business has always done not only a lot of business stories, but they keep an eye on um, political life as well. Greg Hines is a political reporter at Crane's Chicago Business, reporter, columnist. I originally reached out because I thought he wrote a really interesting article on the mayoral race, but today... He has an article that uh, I want to talk to him before we talk about that on Chewy Garcia. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Joan, always good to talk. I see we're, uh, we're both being clobbered on some days by the same people on the, on the Internet, so we must be doing something right. <laughs> ah, you know what? Don't even pay attention to those folks. It's okay. So your article today about Chewy Garcia, he is um, requesting that he be taken off a committee that, in part, looks at digital currency. He, of course, was attacked recently by Mayor Lori Lightfoot for accepting a $200,000 donation from um, everybody's favorite crypto crook, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, and it's a little, you kind of say in your article that, while there may not be a direct link, Chewy, of course, is saying that it's just a question of the Republicans being in power. Democrats aren't going to get waivers to be on more than one committee. So I've decided, like, transportation and infrastructure is where I want to be. Do you think this, um, all of the controversy that has swirled around him with this crypto donation he accepted, did that influence his decision? Is that the reason for his decision? <laughs> Well, let me, as they say on, 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 uh, on that word, it's not your favorite, uh, love you, put the facts out there and then you decide. Hmm. Um, uh, here's the background. Um, Chuy Garcia has been a congressman uh, in the Chicago area for some time now. Uh, like all members of Congress, he had a new district uh, this last year. Uh, uh, he was fortunate enough that nobody ran against him. So he was unopposed. And then even though he was unopposed, uh, a pack that is 
um, that is more or less totally funded by Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, spent $200,000 uh, on uh, literature telling people in the, in the fourth district to vote for Trudeau Garcia. He's a great guy. And uh, Garcia admitted that uh, he did talk uh, uh, to, uh, he, he, he told there, as people told me, he talked to uh, uh, Bankman-Fried's um, uh, brother, he told the Sun Times uh, that he talked to, uh, to Beckman Freed himself. Anyhow, all that raised questions about, oh, gee, why would this guy spend a ton of money on Tui Garcia in an unopposed district? And, and the kind of reason it left out is, well, Garcia was a member, is a member of the House Financial Services Committee uh, that regulates banks and stock exchanges, among other things, and cryptocurrency operators. Okay. So let's so you know having that money available uh, spent on his behalf was kind of handy. It meant that so he didn't have to spend other money on his war chest to, to introduce himself to his new voters, and it left me it meant that it was in the bank when he decided to run for Mary. He just moved from the one account to the other account. Okay. He says that was no. Uh, it's not what it appears that uh, that this was an independent expenditure, which it technically was. Uh, that he didn't wasn't coordinated with, and that the only thing they had in common is a certain interest in in, in full uh, pandemic preparation in case we have a return of COVID or something else. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so. Lori Lenton has been hitting him on this in her TV ads pretty hard. Uh, that and, uh, and his connections to former House Speaker Mike Madigan and says, hey, Chewie likes to hang around with, likes to take money from funky people. Uh, this is not what you would expect from a reformer, from a progressive that says he's going to lead Chicago in a nuclear, clear history. So there's some sign that uh, her attacks have worked. Uh, some of the polls that have come out recently, like hers, uh, show that his, uh, his uh, support has started to drop a little bit. Um, so today in Washington, it turns out, and he didn't announce this, didn't put on a press release. I heard about it and got his people to confirm it. Uh, they confirmed that he had decided to step down as a member of the Financial Services Committee. Well, why did why he agree to do that? He says because uh, with the Republicans haven't taken control of the House, there's less Democrats that can serve on any one committee, uh, and he, it takes a special waiver. And he didn't want to ask for a special waiver uh, because he's already on another committee, Transportation and Infrastructure. So rather than seek the, the waiver and push out another Democrat, he decided to give up his spot on financial services and uh, and uh, uh, go with T&I because that's important to Chicago region. We have a lot of railroad and infrastructure projects or whatever. Um, now, maybe that's true, or maybe that's partially true. I'll, I'll take the congressman in his work. Uh, but it's also worth saying that in, the, in, in kind of in House rankings of committees you want to be on, Transportation Infrastructure is not a terribly popular committee, um, but uh, financial services is extremely popular. It's very influential. It touches all kinds of things. And for the people on it, it just a, brings a, a, a plethora of campaign donations because, you know, banks and stock exchanges, whatever, all figure in the G, they better donate a little bit to uh, keep these members happy, at least to let them, you know, to say hello and whatever. Uh, and, and it's very few members of Congress who would go from, from T and from, uh, financial services to transportation, but that's effectively what Mr. Garcia is doing. But he says that's the real reason, and Lori Lecter is just trying to make a mountain out of a molehill, and and, uh, and uh, uh, let's get on with the campaign. Well, you know, politicians 
take donations from lots of different people, lots of different companies. You know, Sam Bankman Freed was very, very, I mean, he donated millions. It was like, oh, you're, you're, in, you're a politician here. Let me, let me write you a check. Uh, so is this really a huge controversy? You know, I know we know back, uh, when I worked in television, you know, everybody used to say that you have to be really careful because even the appearance of impropriety is almost as bad as actual impropriety. Is that what we have here? Um, nobody's accusing. There's no investigation. There's no criminal investigation. I mean, nobody's accusing Chewy of actually changing or creating um, rules to, to suit the crypto um, interests of Sam Bankman Freed. Is this what I'm saying? Is this really something that we should be digging into or is it a tempest in a teapot? And we're going to be hearing a lot of these as the vote for mayor gets closer. I think it is something we probably should ask some more questions about, but that we can't reach a definitive judgment on. Uh, you are correct that uh, campaign cash rolls in all kinds of directions these days. There's absolutely nobody who's uh, who's uh, not tarnished one way or another. But that having been said, um, uh Having a guy who's now accused of fraud, uh, of, of, of bilking millions of customers or at least hundreds of thousands of customers, so a lot of little innocent people with their money by running this phony enterprise he ran, uh, uh, taking along that person to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on your behalf is not exactly the kind of thing the typical progressive politician would do. He doesn't play very well out there. Uh, like I said, he says he didn't know anything about it. Uh, but I think there's, you know, I think there's, uh, there's, more, there's further questions that need to be answered here. Um, you know, if this is Chicago, when, when somebody spends a ton of money on your behalf, it doesn't just fall off a truck. It doesn't. I mean, there's a reason for it. Um, so does that mean he's necessarily done anything wrong? No. You are absolutely correct. He's not been accused of anything. He's not, to my knowledge, subject to any investigation. But uh, uh, I think it is fair to ask, why did, why did this happen? Um, mm-hmm. The same thing happened uh, in regard to, to another congressman here, uh, Congressman uh, uh, Jonathan Jackson, who got even more money from from, from Bankman Freed and his friends, almost a million dollars was spent on his behalf. Um, um, that came in a crucial time in his campaign, and he literally would not be the congressman if that kind of money had not been spent. So what is what is the way out of this? I mean, does Chewy say, well, you know, I didn't do anything wrong, but to to prove to everybody that I'm I'm blameless and pure, I will take two hundred thousand dollars and donate it to this cause. I mean, is that the way out of this for Chewy? Well, that would be one way. He, he also got a, uh, a small, uh, about $2,000 contribution from Sam Freed directly for residents through his pack that he did donate that money to charity. Um, I don't know, but, you know, this is politics. Um, he said a lot of nasty stuff about Lori Lightfoot. She seems to reason here to use some ammunition against him and demand that he may give some explanations. And we'll leave it up to voters to figure out how serious this is. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but you know, like I said, I think uh, it certainly raises some questions. Let's leave it at that. Um, uh, until we know the answers to those questions for sure, uh, I'd probably have to leave it there. <laughs> well, that sounds like a good time for us to take a break. I'm talking with Greg Hines. He is a political columnist for Crane's Chicago Business. We're going to be back with more right after this. 
Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Greg Hines, who is the political columnist for Crane's Chicago Business. And um, for those of you who get the print edition, and I happen to be one of them, um, (laughs) he wrote a really interesting piece about the mayoral race. And it has been 40 years since Chicago had a one-term mayor. We have a tendency to hang on to our mayors once we get our hooks into them. This, this race, though, is really a competitive horse race. I mean, the, the top four candidates, it could, any one of them could end up running away with it. Um, I thought your insights into this, why you you thought that this race was so wide open, were really, really wonderful. Would you share them with the audience, Greg? Tell them what you wrote. Uh, sure, Jim. Sure. I mean, it's, I mean it's, you've essentially come off the pretty good nutshell description of it. Um, you have uh, at least four, maybe five, and potentially six candidates uh, who conceivably could win this thing. Um, it is indeed wide open. You have a uh, on the one hand, you have an incumbent who is who's who's got a lot of baggage. Uh, Lloyd Leitzer has done some good things, but she has a bad propensity to make enemies when she doesn't need to. And she's had enormous problems had dealing with the crime problem. I don't think anywhere in Chicago, be the progressives or conservatives, uh, people are happy with what she's done, and that has left her very vulnerable. Uh, that having been said, she's an incumbent mayor of Chicago. We both know that incumbent mayors of Chicago generally get what they want. Uh, she's wily. She has enough money, not a huge amount of money, but enough money. Uh, but uh, she's clearly worried, which is why she's been the one on the attack, uh, going against uh, Garcia and, to a lesser degree, uh, Paul Vallis. Um, uh, Mr. Garcia has run before. Uh, he's well-known. Um, he's a... Uh, 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 not been uh, done anything that would get him a lot of fire until recently. Um, uh, uh, he's he's got a claim at this. Um, uh, he at least until recently he was the front runner. Um, but there's a little bit of a of a slit in the progressive base, which is his natural home. Um, there's another candidate, that County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, who has the support of the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, SEIU. Uh, they have a lot of money, a lot of support, a lot of. Uh, Truth out in the precincts. Uh, uh, you know, in a normal year, they might have been expected to go for two Well, they're not. They're going for, for Johnson. And you, know, you never want to split in your own base. Uh, uh, there's a, uh, seven, Latina, seven uh, African-American candidates, which means the black vote isn't united. Um, um, but there's only one white candidate. That's Paul Vallis. And while not everybody votes on the basis of race in this town, I don't. Uh, it's a factor that's there. He's also kind of has the center right to, to some degree to him to himself. Um, uh, he uh, uh, life and accuses him of being a cause of Republican. He denies it and says, "Hey, I was Pat Quinn's running me for heaven's sake." But there's no question that he is. Uh, he 
he's not going to be the progressive man of the year anytime soon. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, he's just not. Uh, you know, Paul is trying to present himself as the wise old hand who could bring some stability and adult leadership to the city that needs it. Is that enough? I don't know. We'll find out. Um, then there's Willie Wilson, uh, who, uh, God bless, Willie has his base of support. He's trying to expand it a little bit. Uh, we'll find out if that's successful or not. He's kind of on the conservative side, too. He's actually more, more conservative than Vallis. He's a, uh, out well, I was just going to say, if you're, calling, if you're calling Paul Vallis center-right, where are you putting Willie Wilson? <laughs> Right, right. Uh, he's a he's a he's a Donald Trump fan. Uh, he he suggested a candidate for him the other day that uh, that Gia Summers should run from or run away from police. We had to go after him like a rabbit. Uh, not not, not yes. much sensitivity there. Uh, um, but uh, Willie is Willie. He has his, he has his fans, uh, and um, probably more important, he has his base. wealthy. he's got a pocketbook, so he can spend whatever he wants. He doesn't have to raise it from anybody. Just uh, you know, tap himself on the shoulder. Say, I need some money, and there's, there there it comes. Um, you know, the, so there's a scenario I can give you that shows any of those making it. And, and keep in mind that, that this, we're really going to have two different elections this year. How the dynamics show up in in the April runoff, and everybody assumes it's going to be an April runoff because nobody's going to get a majority of the vote in, on February 28th. That dynamic is going to be entirely different than the dynamic in the in the in, in the first round. You know, in the first round, you're not trying to appeal to a majority. You're trying to appeal to a big enough minority that you can get the oh twenty or twenty two or twenty three percent to probably get you into the runoff. Um, four years ago, when there was a bigger field, uh, Lightfoot got in with seventeen percent. Seventeen percent. Tony Preco got in with less, 16%. Now, I think that those figures would probably be a little higher now. They probably hit, uh, they probably have a two in front of it, but not, not too much ahead of that. So when, you know, when you only need 20% of the people to vote for you to make, to make it, things get really interesting. Well, what about, um, you know, people talk about votes like like voting by ethnicity as a block, which we know that it isn't. But, you know, the I was talking to somebody earlier today who said, well, you know, um, you know, Lori Lightfoot at the beginning of this might have looked like one of the weaker candidates. But you've got so many black candidates. And will they simply disperse the black vote amongst themselves and really make that kind of an of a non-issue? And they were sort of breaking the all of the candidates down by different categories. And, and then you've got this category with these people who will split this vote. It really does, unless we see a situation where the certain candidates drop out, we already saw Ray Lopez drop out, um, which I don't think was a huge shock uh, to people. Um, but do... If there is the emergence of a strong candidate, if Brandon Johnson feel, really feels he's got a shot, does he go to the other African-American candidates and say, look, we can have an African-American mayor or we can have a white mayor or a Hispanic mayor, but if you all guys drop out and get behind me, we'll have an African-American mayor. Do you see, do you see a conversation like that taking place sometime in the next month? 
Uh, Joan, uh, this year I can see almost anything happening, including this. Uh, uh, this, this, this one is, is wild and woolly and unpredictable. I mean, I know I'm looking at a couple stories now that I can't uh, share yet because I don't have enough proof, but uh, they would certainly change the outcome here. There's, there's lots of balls in the air, and the possibility of, uh, of trying to uh, uh, convince somebody to back out is, uh, is, uh, is certainly on the table. <clears throat> on that having been said, um, uh, there's so many. If you, if you if your goal is to unite the black vote, there are so many black candidates running that I'm not sure that it's just one or two of them just dropping out would make them move the needle much. Um, I don't know that uh, Cam Buckner has a lot of support for it. Just nice guy, head of the Black Caucus in the in the, in the legislature, uh, has some good ideas, but he just doesn't have the resources to campaign at the mayoral level. Uh, Alderman Sawyer uh, from the Sixth Ward, Rod Sawyer. Um, uh, he, same thing. Good guy. Just got some good ideas. Doesn't appear to have the resources. If he draws out, does it does it add much to uh, to Johnson or something? And no, I don't think so. The one alliance that would probably be would, would make sense would be if Chewy would drop out for Johnson, or Johnson would drop out for Chewy. That way, you could put together the whole progressive group in one in one camp. But uh, there's some bad blood there. Uh, yeah, I was going to say I don't see that happening, Greg. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would. I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet your your ballot box on that one. Uh, but yeah. if you want to talk about something that would, in theory, move the needle, that would move the needle. Yeah, Greg Hines, political columnist for Cranes Chicago Business, always a good read and a wonderful conversation on the radio. Greg, thanks so much for uh, chatting with us today. My pleasure, Joe, at any time. And uh, speaking of Alderman Ray Lopez, we are going to be talking with the man who was one of the first to get in the mayoral race and the first to get out of the mayoral race right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Your long drive home just got even easier. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Now weeknights from 5 to 7 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As I've mentioned repeatedly, we are going to have a forum with all of the candidates currently in the race to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We are going to start our broadcast with Turi Ryder back in the studio at noon at 12.15. She will throw it out to us here at the Morning Star Auditorium, where we will be talking for the next two, two and a half hours with all of the people who want to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago and try to find out exactly how they are going to tackle some of the issues of the day. One of the very uh, earliest people to enter the race for mayor was uh, Alderman... Alderman Ray Lopez from the 15th Ward of the city of Chicago. He also, at least so far, has been the first person to get in and get out of the race for mayor of the city of Chicago. And recently, he, after thinking about it and talking to people, decided to make an endorsement of the remaining candidates. He joins us now uh, to talk about this. Raymond, how are you? Joan, good afternoon, and to you and to your listeners, I hope everyone's surviving uh, our January snowfall today. I know, I know. I decided, because I have to be down here early tomorrow, I'm doing my show 
uh, down here. I'm going to stay downtown so that I don't have to worry about driving. But this morning, you know, my big plan was, you know, get on Metra. And from Metro, it would be like a 15, 20-minute walk here. And I got up, and I looked out, and it was a winter wonderland. And uh, I, yes, I said, I think I'm going to take an Uber instead, because that 20-minute walk <laughs> in the snow does not sound so appealing as the 20-minute walk in even 40-degree temperatures with no snow. <sighs> well, my dogs were loving it. I'm sure everyone's kids were loving it. And collectively, yeah. all, all parents everywhere are dealing with dirty floors and, and, and snow-covered children. But oh, I just don't even worry about it in winter. I just, I just figure the floors are going to be, they're going to be dirty till about July, and just go with it. <laughs> I wanted so to talk to you. Candidate bans snow in the winter. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, you recently decided to make an endorsement. What led up to your endorsement, and tell us what you've decided, uh, who you've decided to back. So about two weeks ago, I announced that I was throwing my support in the mayoral race behind Dr. Willie Wilson. I believe that uh, Dr. Wilson uh, has the ability uh, to not only make it into a runoff, but to lead the city uh, using his expertise uh, and talents as someone who can collaborate with people across communities, across demographics. Um, we, he and I have a established relationship going back a few years now where we have worked together on a number of issues. Like whether what? it was trying to use our water department in the uh, buying plan, our $1.2 billion in contracting to replace water and sewer sewer lines, excuse me, as a jobs program across the six districts that are impacted to put people to work in neighborhoods all across Chicago, Uh, something that this administration refused to do because it was too much paperwork. Um, But we also worked together to bring necessary PPE to our first responders, our officers, our firemen, and our other city central workers when the mayor was having difficulty trying to figure out who to provide that contract to. uh, Dr. Wilson stepped up. We also connected communities who were trying to get PPE and were able to distribute tens of thousands of masks, not not only in my ward, but throughout almost every ward in the city of Chicago. And for me, it's important that you have a candidate for mayor who's willing to step up and help my constituents, not just in the political season, but in every season. And a lot of individuals are promising the world, promising to change the world. But I know that there is one person over the past few years who's been with me addressing the needs of the world, and that was Dr. Wilson. Were you concerned at all when he made, he has said repeatedly that he thinks that um, Chicago police officers are too restricted, too encumbered in what they're allowed to do and the way they're allowed to do it, and that they'd be a safer city if they were given more freedom. Um, and recently he said something about that they should have the power to chase down a subject like a rabbit which a lot of people kind of cringed at when they heard. Are you concerned about that, that kind of a statement? And is he too, um, I don't know what the word I want to use here, is is he too conservative when it comes to criminal justice and law enforcement to appeal to the wide swath of Chicago? Well, 
Well, first off, I think that the statement that Dr. Wilson conveyed about uh, police being restrained, police being handcuffed by policy is a valid one. The fact that we live in a city where our officers cannot chase a criminal who's running away, cannot drive after someone who's driving away from them, uh, shows that, you know, on the one hand, he's Dr. Wilson is saying we need to chase these suspects. But right now, that's the complete opposite of what we do in this city, which is we do, we actually make it a policy to let criminals flee in the hopes that we'll catch them at the gas station or catch them somewhere else. And we've seen the impact of that let them go mentality and the fact that we have individuals of all age ranges committing crimes with impunity across all 77 neighborhoods. So I think there's a definite frustration that exists throughout Chicago. And though his comments caught everyone's attention, it does strike a nerve with many people across the city that we do need to allow officers to be able to apprehend criminals when they are doing bad things in our neighborhoods. I also think that when it comes to how, if he's too conservative to appeal uh, to other voters, the fact remains is that he has been a victim of violence himself, having seen his own son murdered. He knows what it's like to be on the opposite end, and he understands that you have to have accountability and responsibility. And I don't think that that is a conservative view. That is a common sense view that people need to be held accountable for what they do. And to have a mayor who can vocalize that and espouse that, uh, particularly to communities where leaders are often afraid to say that out loud, speaks volumes to people, not only uh, in one community, but in all communities. I understand the frustration that people in neighborhoods feel when at a certain point um, Chicago cops have to have to call off, um, have to call off a chase, uh, especially a, a car chase. But part of the reason why those restrictions were put into place is because there were so many accidents, whether caused by the suspects fleeing or the police themselves. Um, there were a lot of innocents who died because they got uh, caught up in a in a police chase or a car veered one way and another car couldn't recover quickly enough. To me, it seems like if we've got the technology to accomplish both, to keep people safe and to keep an eye on somebody who you believe is escaping from a crime, you know, but we haven't made a huge investment. Things like drone technology. Um, we don't have cameras at the entrances and exits uh, on every entrance and exit of the expressway where we might be able to yeah. record a license plate. But even so, I, you know, I, I think I've told this story before, maybe to you. You know, when I was in high school, we had a presentation from a police officer as part of our driver's ed. And one smart aleck kid said something like, well, what if my car is faster than the police car? I'm going to get away from you. And the police officer looked at him and said, you know what? You're not going to drive faster than a radio. And, you know, all they had to do was radio ahead. Here's the direction he's going. Watch for him when he gets there. We have drone technology. We have the ability yes, to use technology to stay on the perpetrators, but also keep people safe. But we don't seem to be adopting it. How do you feel about that yeah. as a middle ground? 
Well, I absolutely believe that our police department should be able to use technology. But what we continuously see is the pushing of narratives onto that technology. For example, we have technology that catches you if you're speeding. Now, speeding is a very universal colorblind metric. If your car is going X amount of miles per hour over the legal, legally allowed speed limit, you get a ticket. But we have seen where people have articulated that that technology is racist. We have individuals who say shot spotters or other gun acoustic technology is racist because it's in certain neighborhoods or because it detects certain individuals doing certain activities. We even have now people trying to say that the license plate readers, which you just vocalized, is racist. And I think what we have to start getting away from is that there are technologies that are present and available that we can use to help mitigate the dangers to the innocent public when criminals are out there. But we also have to get away from making excuses and label everything as racist when it's designed to help keep people safe and keep law and order alive in our neighborhoods. Because, yes, well, we should I think be there's able a strong to use argument technology. When those arguments are made, one of, the, one of the things that I think that we need to do better in the city of Chicago especially is collect data. You know, if, if somebody yes. says, well, it's racist, you put ShotSpotter up in my neighborhood. Well, sir, look at the data. Your neighborhood, this area, has had more gunfire than, you know, every other neighborhood in the city of Chicago. I think you, you know, but it, on the surface of it, oh, you're putting ShotSpotter in the black neighborhoods. That's racist. But if you have the data to show, no, actually, we're putting ShotSpotter because we don't have one for every neighborhood. We're putting them where the problem, the data shows us the problem appears to be the largest. Then I think you you end that argument about racism, don't you think? 100% agree. And I think that is one of the areas where we have seen a weakness in the police department Um, not just in this administration, but even in the last one, where they do not collect data in a usable, shareable, and understandable way. And I think that is one of the main issues as to why so oftentimes officers feel that they are handcuffed because everything seems to be a reaction as opposed to anything that's scientifically based uh, or evidence-based. I'm talking to Alderman Raymond Lopez. He represents Chicago's 15th Ward. He was in the mayor's race. He decided to leave the mayor's race. We're going to continue our discussion with him right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Chicago's progressive talk. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm talking to 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez. We were talking about the mayor's race. He has decided to endorse Willie Wilson. But this coming February 28th, there are also a pretty large number of aldermanic seats that are going to turn over. I believe 15 by my last count. 
How do you see the new city council taking shape? A lot of people seem to believe, and I'm not quite sure why, because there are many candidates, it seems, for every seat. Um, but a lot of people seem to think that the city council could potentially become more progressive after this election. What do you think? Well, I think definitely that option does exist. You know, I believe right now we are at 16 retirements, if I'm not mistaken. So you have 32% of the city council is going to be brand new. So either way, you're going to see a whole uh, deep breath of fresh ideas coming into that body. Um, And I think most of the members are going to wind up being, you know, just by age and virtue of, being a part of a younger generation, more progressive and and more looking to reform government in a positive way. Um, So I think that that's a great opportunity. It's a seminal moment, I believe, in our history of what we're going to be able to do together. As long as we have enough old hands on deck to kind of show them the ropes, teach them how we do things. And I was going to ask you how you feel about being an elder statesman. (laughs) Well, as of right now, um, I will be the 15th most senior member of city council, which is a, a phenomenal statement to make. And actually, I think I'm going to be the most senior Latino member of the city council. So, um, but regardless of, of, of those two items, you know, we have to help uh, the new members know how to help service their communities, how to avoid the pitfalls of rookie mistakes, and how to help them find their voice. Because each one of them will be coming, representing wards uh, that have, for the first time, uh, cho- uh, a new path to follow. And I'm, I'm, I personally am excited um, <clears throat> to be in this moment because I know that this kind of shift does not happen every day. You know, mm-hmm. three or four retirements, a couple losses. You know, on average, you see maybe a 10% shift in uh, new members coming in, old members going out. But this is quite, it could be very well, you know, 35, 40% of the city council with all brand new faces. So very exciting. Yeah. Um, and um, what do you think are the issues um, that the city council will move forward on? I know that um, we came really close under Maria Haddon to getting funding to try to house the unhoused. Um, that is probably an issue that is going to be revisited. What else is going to be coming up in the in the next year? Well, I think definitely we need to address crime and violence in the city of Chicago. I would be remiss if I did not say that city council needs to address this in one fashion or another, um, even going back to what we were previously discussed about the use of technology and as well as pushing the city forward to act on the consent decree, which I think also holds our officers back because they simply don't know how to move forward without being targeted by political agendas. But we need to also focus on how do we continue investing in communities? We see now that we have other states shipping individuals here as a part, part of a political game And we need to come up with a long-term solution that doesn't vilify them even in our own midst because we've seen where the refugees and asylum seekers are now being made to be pawns even in local politics, which is wrong here. Uh, I believe that we also have an opportunity, quite frankly, for the city council finally to exert some independence. And we have seen a number of the mayoral candidates, um, mine included, as well as a few others, who have said that 
they'd like to see a more independent and independently thinking city council. Careful what you ask for, because you don't want <laughs> they don't want twenty six versions of me. Um, but you know that would be a good thing for democracy. And I believe that while we're discussing what we could do as a council, let's right the wrong that we missed. Excuse me, and address redistricting now, so that in ten years we are not carving apart neighborhoods, we are not disenfranchising voters, and that we come up with a way that is. A co- that allows for neighborhood cohesion and community engagement uh, for the next remap and the next for the next cycle. How would that How would that work, though? If you're, you know, um, you don't want a map that's that's gerrymandered, and I mean, you know, I mean, we still have at least one ward that is being described as a lobster. I think. Um, what is the algorithm? What is the what is the way uh, to to do it fairly? Because it seems like no matter how equitable you try to make a map, some group feels that they're slighted or diluted or left out. Well, I think this goes back to what we also talked about before, that you just have to go by data, facts, and the numbers. And if we are looking to try and make it, uh, make a map that's based on neighborhood cohesion, and not incumbent protection, we can do that. We've seen where the fair maps folks actually presented a, a ward map that accomplished exactly that. Uh, and we can do that by instituting, by introducing an ordinance and passing it that calls for an independent map commission to be put together that is, ir- that is irrespective of political allegiance or need so that it's not designed for incumbent protection, but actually for creating the best possible outcomes in terms of creating maps that are mindful of community inclusion as well as geography uh, so that you don't have individuals just working to ensure that they are protected being the incumbent. But you are an incumbent. Why wouldn't you want to be protected? Because I'm an incumbent. I should not be the one picking my constituents. You know, it, it seems to go against the uh, political thinking of many, but in my own personal opinion, if you want to do what's in the best interest of Chicago and in the best interest of our neighborhoods, you need a map that doesn't force people to be boxed in simply because they are of one color, one religion, or the other disqualifiers, because then you wind up with highly gerrymandered maps. I have learned very early on that having a, a ward that had equal amounts of African-Americans and Latinos, I had to learn how to represent both equally, equitably, and respectfully. Imagine if 50 aldermen were able to vocalize that because they had no choice, because they could not play favorites, because their map wasn't overwhelmingly one or the other. So it made you a better alderman. Without question. And I think that that is one way for us to be able to ensure that we are creating a better city council, a more uh, collaborative and more thoughtful city council when you are not beholden to any one group over another. If you have to work with all sides, you become a much better individual. And that applies both in terms of demographics as well as in terms of ideology. Well, I think it's a noble effort, though I think that um, most people would, given the offer of um, 
maybe uh, a, a sort of a mixed bag as far as their voters versus what looks more like a sure thing to get reelected. I, you might be asking too much yeah. of human nature here. <laughs> well, I think that's why we have the opportunity right now when all the the, the 32 percent of the council is brand new. None of them are beholden to this. So we can ah. actually act now and it doesn't impact them for a decade. So we can get this done now. Nothing's going to change for right now because the map's already set. So we won't have to try and jockey the way we did because there were aldermen like Brian Hopkins and myself and a few others who were trying to do the commission this time around while also trying to draw a map. Mm -hmm. I think if we were to push forward with it now where it's non-controversial, many members and possibly even members who are retiring, maybe we even do it before the new members commit. Who knows? We still have five months of legislation we can do. So we can either do it now and see how far it goes or do it when the new ones come in and say we've all restored some faith in the democratic process by taking the mapping process out of the hands of politicians. Well, I wish you luck with that idea and all of your other endeavors in city council. And I thank you for joining me today. It is always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for being here, Raymond. That's um, that's going to do it for me. I will be back on the air with you to remember tomorrow at 1215 when we have the nine candidates for mayor in front of us answering our questions. Please join us then. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is next. Santita will kick things off at, um, hey, Matt, will Santita be at 6 a.m. or is she just going to do the panel? She'll be there at 6 a.m. tomorrow. Okay. I'll see you tomorrow at 1215. Have a great evening. Good night.